If I were to ask you this morning to summarize from one verse of Scripture, the very heart of the Gospel, a verse that expresses very succinctly what God has done in Jesus Christ to make guilty sinners righteous, which one would it be? Maybe some statement from Jesus. Maybe a verse from Isaiah 53 or one of the prophets. Perhaps from the pen of the apostles. Maybe something from Romans or Galatians. Well, the text that I have chosen for our meditation this morning, from among many possible ones from which we might choose, is found in the last verse that was read by our brother John this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21. He, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now this pregnant gospel statement follows Paul's discussion in chapter 4 of the tribulations and the triumphs of the apostolic ministry, which closes with a great encouragement Belonging to all who look beyond things temporal to things eternal, things that we can't see with the eyes of sense, that can only be perceived with the eye of faith, that tribulations actually work glory. With his eye upon the eternity, upon eternity and the hope of glory, Paul begins chapter 5 contemplating the body God fits for glory for which we now groan even in anticipation. In order to be ready for the dawning of that glorious day, the Apostle reveals the twofold compulsion that drives us to be faithful to our charge, that is, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, which he urges upon all who would engage in faithful gospel ministry. His urgent message for sinners is summarized in his majestic and magnificent declaration that the Corinthians be reconciled to God. And how to be reconciled to God? By trusting Jesus Christ, embracing the glorious truth that is found in our text. Let me read it once more. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, before coming to a few words of concluding application, we have three points by way of exposition, drawing out the truths that are found in this glorious verse. First of all, we're going to look at an awesome affirmation about Christ. He knew no sin. Secondly, an alarming announcement about God. He made him to be sin on our behalf. And thirdly, an astounding assertion to sinners that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. Let us then begin. Let us consider first this morning as we seek to open up this text an awesome affirmation about Christ. He knew no sin. Now, if you've been raised in a gospel church, if you've been taught by Bible-believing parents, you just take for granted that Jesus was without sin. And that is gloriously true. In fact, we can take it, this glorious truth, so much for granted that it loses its luster before our eyes. Jesus is the sinless Savior. Indeed, there could be no good news for sinners if Jesus was not without sin. You see, the Savior of sinners must himself be sinless. Only a sinless Savior can save. That Jesus knew no sin, obviously, doesn't mean that he was unaware of sin, that he went through life not knowing about sin. No, he came from heaven as our mediator. To do what? To seek and to save that which is lost. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as he viewed the plight of men and women languishing in sin and under the wrath of God. Jesus knew sin not by experience. He knew sin by observation. He witnessed its tragic effects and he knew its terrible eternal consequences. That is precisely why he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Indeed, he who knew no sin wept over sinners. Jesus was born without sin. He lived without committing a single sin. He was tempted in all points as we are to sin, but he never yielded to temptation even in his heart. Our Savior never sinned. And let's think about Jesus' sinlessness for a moment. Our Lord was sinless because he was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his virgin mother, effectively shielding him from contracting the sinful nature of his mother. So if you know any Roman Catholics, you need to tell them that Jesus' mother needed a Savior she needed to be saved by her son, that she was a sinner and she needed redemption. Indeed, she looked upon him as her savior. Luke's record of the angel's announcement to Mary is full of wonder. Luke chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and we'll jump down to 35. Now in the sixth month, that is the month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in the sixth month of her pregnancy... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, telling her how she was going to conceive and she was going to bear the Son of God, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you who are a virgin. 
You have never known a man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. There is much mystery in these verses, brethren, the, the truths of which we'll never fully understand how the Son of God became the Son of Man and the, the miracle of the conception of our Savior in the womb of his sinful mother, yet coming forth from her womb without the stain of sin. Further, Jesus was conscious that he was without sin. He could ask his most virulent enemies, John 8 and verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? Now, his his detractors, his enemies, said he makes himself out to be the Son of God. They believed that he was guilty of a crime. Well, he was the Son of God. And so he, as he made himself out to be the Son of God, that was not a lie. It was the truth. Our Lord assured his apostles on the trying night of his arrest, when Satan and all the legions of hell were arrayed against him, that the devil had nothing by which to lay hold of him, that he had no sin nature sympathetic to the cause of the evil one like we all have. The devil can get a hold of us. He's got a handle in us on our sin nature. But he had no such handle in Jesus. Indeed, Jesus implies his own sinlessness when he tells his disciples in John 14 and verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Men who had varying levels of acquaintance with Christ attested to his sinlessness. The spineless Pilate who closely questioned our falsely accused Lord, judged him guiltless. We read in, in John 19 and verse 6, When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. He just had an audience with Pilate. Pilate asked him some questions. And after speaking with Christ, he says, For I find no guilt in him. And Pilate's wife said, as a result, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. He may be charged with lots of things, but he is guilty of nothing. A penitent thief once railing at Christ, crucified next to the Lord Jesus, testified of his sinlessness, Luke 23 and verse 41. And he says to his fellow who is railing against Christ, and indeed, justly, we, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. A Roman army captain who carried out Jesus' crucifixion 
declared his sinlessness. Luke 23 and verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he saw the infernal rage of Jesus' enemies. He saw how he calmly trusted in God, even nailed to the cross, enduring unspeakable agony, never uttering a syllable of threat against those who nailed him to the horrible tree. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. Now, why was he praising God and seeing this terrible sight before him, saying, certainly this man was innocent. He had committed no crime. We should not be surprised that Jesus' apostles, who lived with him day in and day out for over three years, testified of Jesus' sinlessness. They saw him in what we might say our weaker moments, our most tested trials. Saw, saw him react in a di way completely different than them when they sinned. He didn't. Indeed, they witnessed what they taught. Only a sinless Savior was qualified to redeem guilty sinners. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. There is in us, but there isn't in Him. He came to take away sin, indeed by the sacrifice of Himself. What does Peter say? First Peter 3, verse, first of all, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. We know that because he goes on to say, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter also says, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 22, speaking of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And then the writer to the Hebrews, who had testified that he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin, in chapter 4 and verse 15, what we read in chapter 7 and verse 26, for it was fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Brethren, only a sinless sacrifice can provide an atonement sufficient to save guilty sinners like you and me. This redemptive truth was taught under the Old Covenant with the requirement for only perfect, spotless sacrifices. And Peter points to the fulfillment of those symbolic sacrifices in the actual sacrifice of Jesus, knowing that you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I think that's chapter 1 and verse 19. I don't have it in my notes. So we see an awesome affirmation about Christ. He knew no sin. Notice, secondly, 
an alarming announcement about God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now, brethren, if you have any sense of equity, any sense of justice, any sense of what's right and what's wrong, this statement should alarm you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. God made his beloved sinless son to be sin. Now, obviously, God did not make Jesus to be a sinner. That was impossible. A sinner could not be our Savior. Indeed, Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. He cannot be made to be a sinner. But God treated Jesus, his sinless, beloved son, as if he were the sinner. Indeed, all those around him who watched him die, they must have thought, what kind of crime did this man commit to endure this kind of agony in his death? Beyond this, God did not so much make Jesus an offering for sin. That's true enough. But what the offering represented as sin itself. Jesus was made sin for sinners. What does that mean? Well, notice first that the evangelical prophet saw this. He testified to it before Paul ever wrote it. Isaiah chapter 53, in a few verses, we'll look at 5, 6, and 12 here. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see what's being contrasted here in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ is the perfect holiness and sinlessness of our sacrifice and substitute Jesus compared to the sinfulness and just deserts of those for whom he died, us. The old liberals used to refer to the atonement of the Bible, the teaching of of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is a slaughterhouse religion. They sneered. They say this bloody slaughterhouse religion, it's repugnant. Well, it is repugnant to the proud, but it's the glory of the humble. Some false teachers today accuse the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, of God punishing his beloved sinless son in the place of sinners as constituting divine child abuse. Have you ever heard that? Well, brethren, this is false. 
This is blasphemous. This is unbiblical for several reasons. First of all, Jesus voluntarily came to seek and to save those given him by the Father. There was no coercion upon Christ. In heaven, in the great council of eternity, the Father had chosen to save certain ones. And Jesus, as it were, said, here am I, send me, send me to purchase them. So the second person of the eternal Godhead was not coerced. He didn't say, and I say this reverently, no, I really don't want to do that. Choose someone else for the task. I'm a little bit too important for that, don't you think? None of that. Second, Jesus and the Father were united in their commitment to save lost sinners. Jesus could say at one point, I and the Father are what? We're one. We're one in a saving purpose. Those that the Father chose, Jesus said, I will die for them. I will purchase them by my righteous life and my sin-atoning death. Thirdly, Jesus joyfully contemplated the sure fruit of his self-sacrifice. It was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising or treating the shame with contempt, and is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, he was a man of sorrows as he looked at men's sin, what it cost them in this life, and what it would cost them for all eternity. But it was for the joy that was set before him that he went all the way to the cross, at times with a furrowed brow, knowing what was waiting for him. At one time, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with God. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not, but not my will, but thine be done. Three times he prayed this, and during the end he was sweating, and great drops of blood were coming down with his perspiration as he pleaded with God, knowing what was waiting for him at the other end of the line. But he joyfully contemplated the fruit of his sacrifice. Indeed, even upon the cross, in the midst of all of his agony, he saw the fruit of his sacrifice and was pleased. Finally, Jesus gladly anticipated the glory that would redound to God and to himself by becoming sin in the place of sinners. John 17, verse 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Next, let us ponder the intended beneficiaries of Jesus' substitutionary death. On whose behalf did our Lord voluntarily become sin? Well, we've already hinted at the answer, but who are they? Well, in the context, they refer to the all for whom the one, that is Jesus, died, 
and who also rose again on their behalf. Look back in the context at verses 14 and 15. That they should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who redeemed them by his death and resurrection. Well, again, who are they? They all are in Christ, and each one is a new creation or new creature from whom old things have passed away and for whom new things have come. Verse 17. They are described in verse 18 as being reconciled to God in Christ, who constitute the world that God reconciled to himself in Christ, against whom their trespasses are no longer counted. Verse 19. In other words, they are the world for whom Jesus died and rose again, the ones he redeemed, for whom he became sin, and in whom they become the righteousness of God. Jesus refers to them as my sheep in John chapter 10. For Paul, they are the elect of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 in other places. Consider next the astounding identity of him that became sin for sinners. He is the beloved, incarnate Son of God, the chief object of the Father's love, chosen of the Father to redeem his people by becoming sin for them. How does God refer to the one he made sin? And brethren, we could look at many passages. Many jump out of the Bible and say, pick me, pick me, pick me. Well, we can't look at all of them, but we can look at a couple of them. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. And each one of these represent many others. Isaiah 40, uh, 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. You see, he was the apple of his father's eye. All his love, indeed to us, goes through Jesus. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. If you were to ask God, I say this reverently, who is your favorite? And he would say, my son. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. At the baptism of our Savior. As he inaugurated his messianic ministry as the only mediator of God's elect. And behold a voice out of heaven. Already the, the Spirit of God descended, as it were, as a dove and lit upon the Savior. You have all three persons of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father speaking, you have the, the Spirit descending, and you have the Son being identified with those that He came to save. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Dear ones, we are left to gaze in wonder at the unfathomable 
depths of God's love for sinners through his beloved Son, indeed, that moved him to pour out his unsparing wrath toward sinners, not upon the sinner himself, but upon his own beloved Son, making him sin for them. So identified with their sin, he died for their sin under his wrath. Indeed, God dealt mercilessly with the son of his love that he might show mercy to the children of wrath, treating his son as guilty, making him sin that he make, might make us his righteousness in him. Brethren, this is the glorious cosmic rea- uh, undertaking that is necessary for us to be saved that he makes his son sin, that he might make us righteousness in him. This is the cosmic transaction of the ages. These are things into which angels long to look. We can understand by experience they can all, what they can understand only in the abstract because they've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, like we who know Christ have. With shocking, almost scandalous language, God speaks of his own treatment of his beloved son, the one in whom he is well pleased, his chosen one, the one in whom his soul delights. Zechariah 13 in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. God marshals all of his wrath, emblem in the emblem of a sword, and says, Strike him. Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 10. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall, to come crashing down upon him. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. We almost have to turn away from verses like this because they seem so contradictory to the character and conduct of God who loved his son, and now he's treating him like the worst possible sinner. Indeed, all sinners who trust him, he dies for them. Putting him to grief. Peter puts it this way in Acts 2 and verse 23. This man... Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, behind their voluntary sinful action, they did what they wanted to do, and indeed they carried out the eternal plan of God, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, delivered up by that, given to you, and you put him to death. And God stood back and he didn't step in in order to deliver his son. 
That's why I said we, we can't wrap our minds around this. This seems almost scandalous, even to the sanctified mind. Paul states it very calmly in Romans 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. He's crying out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He's crying out for Elijah to come down from heaven and deliver him. That was the thought of many. God is going to dispatch Elijah in a chariot of fire, and he's going to sweep up his son and save him from his sin. But did that happen? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He didn't spare him, he delivered him up. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, we come to the great cry of dereliction of our Savior. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew that this was coming. He knew that he would be separated from his father when he poured out his wrath against him. And here we, we, we witness the cry of the Savior. God turned his face away from his son as he poured out his wrath upon him. A sense of separation Jesus had never experienced in all of his days and never will since. Hymn writers attempt to frame these things in words that we sing. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression but thine the deadly pain. And words we're more familiar with. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Brethren, the father treated his son as the worst of sinners, indeed as if he were all sinners, so that he may treat us as sons, indeed as his beloved son, making him sin so that he might make us righteousness in him. This is amazing grace indeed. Notice thirdly, after seeing the an awesome affirmation about Christ, he knew no sin. An alarming announcement about God, he made him to be sin on our behalf. And this astounding assertion to sinners that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, brethren, this is a remarkable statement. The purpose of Jesus becoming sin on our behalf is that we as guilty, vile, hell-deserving rebels might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Guilty, vile, and helplessly we 
This means, of course, that Jesus himself possesses the righteousness of God. This is the glorious goal of Jesus' suffering and death. Only then could God communicate his righteousness to us. Death must first take place before we can become the righteousness of God in him. Only by union with Christ is it possible that we may become the righteousness of God. Indeed, union with Jesus Christ lies at the very foundation of all that we've been considering here this morning. It's the great and glorious doctrine that underlies every redemptive aspect of what God has done in Jesus Christ for us. It's the great building block of the whole house of redemption. Union with Jesus Christ. He became one with our sin that we might become one with him in God's righteousness. Paul speaks plainly in Romans of the mystery of our union and solidarity with Adam in his first sin, and then of our union with Christ in his life of righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. For if by the transgression of the one, who's he speaking of here? Adam. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that's why we die, because we're united with Adam in his transgression, the wages of sin is death. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, that is the other one, the second Adam. Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, because we were all in Adam, when he committed that sin, he represented us all, we were in union with him. Even so, through one act of righteousness, I think speaking of the whole righteous life of Jesus Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men, all that he represented. They are justified. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Union with Adam in his death, in his guilt. Union with Jesus Christ in his life and in his righteousness. The principle of union with Christ lies at the heart of substitution and imputation, that is, to put upon one what belongs to another. We sinned representatively in Adam and were charged with his guilt. In Christ, by way of substitution and imputation, we, as it were, lived His perfectly holy, sinless life. The sinless life is transferred to our account. And so we who never were and even are not right now righteous in ourselves become the righteousness of God, but only as we are in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to become the righteousness of God in Christ? What is the benefit to us? Well, brethren, it is more than pardon. It's more than the forgiveness of sins. 
Indeed, if just our sins are forgiven, we go back to a state of innocence. We go back to the state of Adam before he fell. So we are more than pardoned by the work of Jesus Christ for us. Even It's even more than having Christ's righteousness imputed to us who remain sinners. Brethren, wonders of wonders, we are made not only righteous, as glorious as that is, but we are made righteousness itself. Even as Jesus was made sin itself, we are made righteousness itself. That's what what Paul is contrasting and comparing here. In the same way that Jesus became sin, we become righteousness. Professor Murray rightly observes that in reality the concept is richer than that of imputation, that is, what's being credited to another. It is not simply reckoned as ours, but that it is reckoned to us and we are identified with it. Christ is ours, and therefore all that is His is ours in union with Him, and we cannot think of Him in His vicarious capacity or of anything that is His in this capacity except union and communion with His people. We are one with Him and He with us. That's why Paul's, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Under the earth, can pos- under heaven can possibly do that. If this glorious truth cannot or had not been recorded by an inspired apostle, we might regard this as something just beyond belief. This is too good to be true. Justification by imputed righteousness, brethren, is no legal fiction as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's divine fact. From the moment of Jesus' birth to his last gasp of life upon the cross, Jesus was made sin for us. Why? So that from the moment we are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, we may be made forever the righteousness of God in him. Another astonishing truth is that the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and this is most wonderful, is available to the greatest sinner if he but believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Remember who wrote 2 Corinthians. It was the same man who testified in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy. Why, Paul? In order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And that is you and me if we are Christians. If he can save the chief of sinners, he can save the least of sinners, and he can save everyone in between who trusts upon Jesus Christ. If you come to Jesus confessing your foulness and sin and the the guilt of your countless transgressions of His law, He will receive you. And more than forgive your guilt, how great a blessing is that alone. He will cover you with His righteousness. Augustus Toplady, the author of Rock of Ages, in another one of his hymns, speaks to Christ thus, In thee we have a righteousness by God himself approved. Our rock, our sure foundation, this which never can be moved. 
A ransom by thy death was paid for all thy people given. The law thou perfectly obeyed that they might enter heaven. So what does it say by way of a few concluding applications? I have three. First of all, let us bow in humble adoration before God at the awesome mystery. And that's an overused word, but it's properly used here. The awesome mystery revealed in these glorious gospel truths. Especially, too, at the condescension, the stooping of Christ, who became sin for sinners. It was the just for the unjust. He had to be treated as if he was the worst of sinners. Indeed, if he, and he did, possess the guilt and liability of judgment for all the sins of all those for whom he died. Who can count that? Charles Wesley understood something of that. He left his father's throne above so infinite so free, so infinite his grace, humbled himself because of love and bled for all his chosen race. Let us bow in humble adoration at the condescension of Christ, but also at the exaltation of sinners who become the righteousness of God. We, we sang these words. Let's think about them. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, thy, my glorious dress, its flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Second, let us earnestly preach this glorious message of reconciliation to sinners who desperately need the righteousness of Christ. Remember that this great, this glorious gospel statement comes at the end of Paul speaking of himself and others as ambassadors, pleading with men, begging them to be reconciled to God. You see, Paul doesn't present the doctrine of imputed sin and imputed righteousness simply to satisfy our curiosity or even that it may cause us to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. As well, we should. But the Apostle's purpose in setting forth this glorious doctrine is as practical as it is educational and doxological. Flanking this statement is our duty to those who are yet in their sin, who need to hear the message of reconciliation flowing from this doctrine of double imputation, our sin to Christ, His righteousness to us. Chapter 5 in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Chapter 6, verse 1, and working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And sandwiched in between these two calls to salvation is the very means by which we're saved. 
Now, brethren, true it is that we are not Christ's ambassadors in a formal sense, as Paul and the other apostles were, yet we have been reconciled to God by His grace, as they have. And we therefore have a duty to urge other sinners to seek to be reconciled to Him, and to warn them that they receive not the grace of God in vain. We must urge them to flee to Jesus Christ from the wrath to come. Let us be faithful ambassadors for our Lord by freely and passionately proclaiming the message of this text. Let us urge men and women and boys and girls to trust Christ so that they too might become the righteousness of God. If He saved us, can He not also save them? Well, obviously so. Brethren, there is no more glorious word than this. Let us plainly show them their sin and their terrible situation before God as children of wrath. Let us speak of their desperate need for a righteousness that they can never earn, but what has been earned by the doing and the dying of Jesus. Let us press upon them their duty to be reconciled to God, as Paul says earlier. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Thirdly and finally, let, though, let, let no sinner waste a moment of time, but be fully persuaded of his dreadful state and immediately seek God's righteousness by going at once to Christ. Waste not a moment. You don't know what, you, what tomorrow brings. The gospel is now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off to a more convenient time that may never come. You may never come to that time. And by that time, you've so hardened your heart that you will not, you will not even think about the sermon that you heard that called you right now to come to Christ. The longer you live in sin, the more comfortable you become in sin. Brethren, implied here is the duty for you if you're outside of Christ, if you're still in your sin. You're under the wrath of God. You need to be reconciled to Him. Therefore, do not treat your sin lightly. Don't regard this glorious truth of the righteousness of God imputed to you by faith. Do not regard it with contempt. Your only hope for salvation from the wrath of God is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You're robed right now in your sin. You need to be dressed in the glorious garb of the righteousness of Christ. But as long as you see yourself as good, maybe even religious, you might see yourself as a person, I don't need to be saved. You might see yourself as a person, well, I can save myself. And if you think this way, you'll never come to Christ. You must put off your supposed righteousness so that, you must, so that you may be able to put on Christ's true righteousness. Until you put off your righteousness, you'll never put on His. You see, often it's not sin that keeps people from Christ, it's their righteousness. They think they have enough. That their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds and they'll find acceptance with God at the end. No, you can't just have a few good deeds. You have to have Christ's perfect deeds. 
He only accepts the perfect into heaven. Only those that are righteous into heaven. And if you're not in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life. You're never going to make it to heaven. Unless you seek the only righteousness God accepts, you'll never be saved. You're acceptable before God only as you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. See, today is the day. Not now, not later in life, but now. This means that there's room at the cross for you. Know for sure that there is no greater fool than the person who refuses God's offer of righteousness. Trust Christ so that you do not perish in your sin and go to hell. What did our sinless Savior promise to needy sinners like you? He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Do you see yourself as sick? I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as you really are? Not as you like to think you are, but as you really are. As God knows you are. I said, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Is that not a gospel invitation worthy of your acceptance? Let's pray. Oh, Father, such glorious truths as these, the depths we cannot plumb, indeed will wear out age unto age into eternity, marveling at the one who took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Oh, might we begin, even now, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise at the one who came for us the Holy One who came for the unholy, that the just one came for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. If there's any here without Christ who have any doubts that they're in Christ, oh, might you open their eyes to see the Lord Jesus dying for their sin and that you would grant them faith to believe upon him that they might be made the righteousness of God in him. And for the rest of us, Lord, we who often take these precious truths for granted, impart to our hearts a burning urgency to speak to those who are without hope and without God in this world under your wrath, that we might speak to them of the word of hope to come to Jesus Christ, to cast off their sin, to cast off their righteousness, to embrace the love of God and be embraced by the love of Christ and to be clothed with his righteousness. O oh Lord, according to our several needs, you who are a gracious God, visit us with help from on high. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.